everyone. Welcome to ASEP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. This special episode is a recording of a recent educational session titled Castleman Disease, Case-Based Learning. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. And now, the session. It is such an honor for me to share with you all about Castleman disease. My name is David Fagenbaum, and I'm the founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-founder and president of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. I first learned about Castleman disease when I was a medical student, when I myself became critically ill with the disease and have dedicated my life to unlocking etiology, pathogenesis, and evidence-based guidelines for this disease. Castleman disease describes a group of disorders that share the same appearance under the microscope, but behave quite differently. I think it's really important to subtype Castleman disease based on these clinically relevant features. So one form of Castleman disease is what's called unicentric Castleman disease, where there's a single region of enlarged lymph nodes. And these patients can have uh, mild to moderate clinical and laboratory abnormalities. There's another form of Castleman's called multicentric Castleman disease. These patients have multiple regions of enlarged lymph nodes, tend to have a, a severe systemic inflammatory response, and, and what we often call a cytokine storm. Um, among uh, patients with multicentric Castleman disease, it's important to further subtype it into the cases that are caused by infection with human herpes virus 8, which we, which we call HHV8-associated multicentric Castleman disease. Poems associated with multicentric Castleman disease, where there's a monoclonal plasma cell population that's driving the lymphadenopathy. Finally, what we call idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. These are patients with multiple regions of large lymph nodes, a cytokine storm, but no evidence of HHV8, no evidence of a cancer. These are idiopathic. We don't know the cause. Then within idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, we often subtype patients as having what's called Tafro syndrome, which is the most severe cases who have progressive thrombocytopenia and organ dysfunction versus idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease not otherwise specified. These patients often have thrombocytosis and a much more uh, chronic or less progressive uh, disease course. In order to make the diagnosis of unicentric Castleman disease, a patient needs to have a single region of enlarged lymph nodes, which may be either one enlarged lymph node or it could be multiple enlarged lymph nodes in the same area. Once that is identified, a lymph node biopsy is essential to cut the lymph node out and to look at it under the microscope to determine if that patient has histopathologic features that would be considered consistent with unicentric Castleman disease. If so, we would consider this patient to have unicentric Castleman disease, a single enlarged lymph node or regional lymph nodes with features consistent with Castleman disease. Alternatively, in order to make the diagnosis of multicentric Castleman disease, patients need to have multiple regions of enlarged lymph nodes, so disseminated lymphadenopathy. They need to have a lymph node biopsy performed to determine whether those lymph nodes have features that are consistent with multicentric Castleman disease, so atrophic germinal centers, increased plasma cells, increased vascularity. So you look for these particular features, and then once you have those, you now need to confirm that the patient also has clinical and laboratory abnormalities that would be consistent with multicentric Castleman disease, things like anemia, thrombocytopenia, fluid accumulation, fever. These minor criteria are required. You need at least two of the 11 minor criteria with at least one of them being a laboratory abnormality. And finally, you need to meet exclusion criteria. You need to rule out diseases like lupus and lymphoma that can mimic multicentric Castleman disease. And importantly, for it to be idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, you need to make sure that there's no evidence of human herpes virus 8 
by staining a lymph node and checking for this infection. At this time, I'd like to present a case to really bring Castleman disease to life. We've got a 16-year-old boy who presents to the emergency department with just about a week of a flu-like prodromal illness um, where his pediatrician one week earlier had suggested that he stay home um, due to a likely viral illness. But now he presents to the emergency department with worsening fatigue, um, severe night sweats the night before. And so in the lab, uh, they decide to perform a number of tests. Uh, CVC reveals mild anemia, um, but normal platelet counts. Uh, inflammatory markers reveal increased CRP and elevated ESR. And a CMP reveals uh, mildly elevated creatinine. And a serum protein electrophoresis reveals elevated gamma globulin levels. So based on these laboratory abnormalities, um, uh, a physical exam is done, and then imaging is done, and that reveals that there's generalized enlarged lymph nodes throughout this 16-year-old boy, as well as splenomegaly. So at this stage, um, I think you all would be thinking that maybe this patient has lymphoma, uh, an infection like mono, or maybe an autoimmune disease, um, and it's really important to do further workup to determine what it is. The patient was admitted, and um, given that uh, high-dose steroids didn't improve symptoms right away and laboratory abnormalities, and given that the infectious workup was completely negative, uh, it was determined to take out one of these lymph nodes to determine if this patient had lymphoma or some other lymphoproliferative disorder. And upon um, excision of the lymph node, it became clear this patient had plasma cytosis, so sheets of plasma cells between germinal centers and had these atrophic germinal centers along with expanded mantle zones. These are the features that you often see with Castleman disease. And further staining for LANA1, which is a, a marker of HHV8 infection, was performed and turned out to be negative. And when you bring this case together, you've got a patient with multiple regions of enlarged lymph nodes, uh, pathology that's consistent with multicenter calcium disease, HHV8 testing that's negative, indicating this is HHV8 negative idiopathic multicenter calcium disease, and then four of 11 minor criteria. So in this young patient, we would then go to our treatment guidelines, and we would see that the first line recommended therapy for a patient like this would be anti-IL-6 therapy with sultuximab. We gave this patient sultuximab, and within three days of the first infusion, we began to learn of improvement in symptoms and also begin to see some of the laboratory abnormalities improve. By about seven weeks, um, each of the laboratory uh, abnormalities had completely returned to normal, um, and this patient was back to uh, his prior state of health. And then would be continued on every three-week dosing of sultuximab moving forward. I'd like to present a case of Castleman disease that can really help to bring this disease to life. So we've got a 31-year-old female who presents the emergency department with a month of fatigue, weight loss, and what she described as new blood moles, and about a two-week history of night sweats with five days of quite severe right upper quadrant pain, swelling around the ankles, but really no significant past medical history. Uh, on physical exam, it was clear that there was um, cervical and axillary lymphadenopathy. There was also this mild peripheral edema around the patient's ankles and these blood moles that had popped up on this patient's chest and shoulders. So laboratory testing was, was performed and was found to have uh, mild anemia, elevated creatinine, and mildly um, uh, low platelet counts. Given the multicentric lymphadenopathy, a full-body CT was performed, which confirmed diffuse lymphadenopathy, um, even within the thorax and, and also pelvis, um, but also revealed splenomegaly, uh, pleural effusions, and ascites. So this previously healthy 30-year-old, 31-year-old female has a number of quite concerning clinical and laboratory abnormalities. Given the abnormal um, clinical and laboratory features that were observed, the patient was admitted to the hospital and unfortunately, over the course of the next few days, progressed rapidly requiring admission to the intensive care unit due to multi-organ system failure. Um, after uh, several days of progressive uh, organ dysfunction, 
um, gaining uh, over 40 pounds of fluid with Anasarca due to severe renal dysfunction that required dialysis, um, uh, along with very low albumin levels and severe systemic inflammation. Um, the patient continued to progress, um, experienced an acute retinal hemorrhage that caused temporary blindness, transaminitis, uh, as well as quite severe anemia and thrombocytopenia that required um, daily transfusions. Uh, as the patient continued to get worse and worse, a lymph node biopsy was performed after um, infectious disease workup came back negative and there was no clear autoimmune etiology uh, for this disease. The lymph node biopsy came back consistent with idiopathic multicenter calcium disease. It was particularly vascularized and could sometimes be described as the hypervascular histopathological subtype. So when you put everything together, we've got a patient with multiple regions of enlarged lymph nodes that meets the first major criteria. Histopathological features of that lymph node consistent with multicenter calcium disease. HHVA testing is negative, so now both major criteria are achieved for idiopathic multicenter calcium disease. And then 10 out of 11 minor criteria were achieved for this particular patient. So between the multi-organ failure, the systemic inflammatory syndrome, and the fluid accumulation that was observed, this patient met nearly all 11 minor criteria for the diagnosis. And importantly, exclusionary criteria, including lymphoma, um, a number of autoimmune conditions, and infectious diseases, were all ruled out. So this patient has idiopathic multicenter calcium disease based on the acute and severe presentation along with the severe thrombocytopenia. This patient would be considered to have the idiopathic multicenter calcium disease TAFRO subtype which is by far the most severe. Now that the diagnosis is made, the patient should be immediately started on anti-IL-6 therapy with siltuximab. Given that this patient is quite severe, um, concomitant high-dose corticosteroids should also be given along with the siltuximab, and daily monitoring is essential. You need to make sure that there is no progressive organ dysfunction while the patient is on anti-IL-6 therapy. And if needed, give accelerated weekly dosing of siltuximab instead of the typical every three-week dosing. So in this patient, we track the patient daily for signs of organ dysfunction. And unfortunately, around day eight, organ dysfunction continued to progress. The patient required even more frequent dialysis, even more frequent transfusions, and laboratory abnormalities were not improving. Given this progressive organ dysfunction, despite being on IL-6 blockade, the patient was started on multi-agent chemotherapy, adromycin, cytoxin, etoposide, velcade, dex, thalidomide, rituximab. This combination of seven chemotherapies while continuing the siltuximab did result in a very substantial improvement in a particular patient, which was fantastic news for the patient. I was able to discontinue um, dialysis and was able to return to her prior state of health. Unfortunately, she would go on to have subsequent relapses, and it became critical that we identify a therapy that could try to keep her in remission. Based on work in my laboratory uncovering an important role for mTOR activation in idiopathic multicenter calcium disease, and given that this patient had relapsed on anti-IL-6 therapy and had required multi-agent chemotherapy, we decided to treat her with serolimus, an mTOR inhibitor that's been around for decades um, and has been able to show benefit in, in a subset of patients with idiopathic multicenter calcium disease that have been treated with it. And this patient had a very impressive response to therapy with a durable remission. Um, we now have a clinical trial open of the mTOR inhibitor serolimus for INCD patients who are relapsed or refractory on anti-IL-6 therapy. I thought I'd take a moment to talk a little bit about how and, and why we treat idiopathic multicenter calcium disease the way that we do. So in IMCD, we know that a number of uh, potential triggers can lead to this cytokine storm, and typically interleukin-6 is the key driver in the cytokine storm. So patients experience systemic inflammation, organ dysfunction, and cytopenias due to the excess levels of cytokines, including IL-6. So importantly, we always start out by blocking interleukin-6 with a targeted antibody called siltuximab. That's first line of therapy, and it works very well in about one-third to one-half of patients. 
Unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone. So if a patient does not respond to IL-6 blockade, if they progress while on IL-6 blockade, then if they're very severe, we recommend chemotherapy. If they're not yet in a severe category, that's where immunomodulators like mTOR inhibitors like serolimus and drugs like rituximab can be considered to treat these anti-IL-6 refractory patients. And in doing so, you're hitting other aspects of the immune system. So even if IL-6 is not the driver, we know that other cytokines are playing critical roles. So hitting signaling pathways like mTOR or JAK-STAT are other ways to dampen the cytokine storm. Hi, my name is Ana Maria Perry, and I'm a hematopathologist at the University of Michigan. In this presentation, I'm going to talk about Castleman disease from the pathologist's perspective. Castleman disease is a lymphoproliferative disorder that primarily involves lymph nodes. Clinically, two variants are recognized, unicentric and multicentric. In unicentric variant, single lymph node or a lymph node group at the same anatomic site is involved, while in multicentric variant, multiple lymph node groups are involved. Histologic classification of Castleman disease is a little bit different. Unicentric Castleman disease is most commonly of hyaline vascular variant and occasionally of plasma cell variant. Multicentric Castleman disease can be HH38 positive or HH38 negative, which is also called idiopathic. HH38 positive Castleman disease has a histology of plasma cell variant, but we can demonstrate also HHV8. HHV8 negative or idiopathic Castleman disease has a histology of plasma cell variant. When we talk about unicentric Castleman disease, most cases, 50 to 80 percent depending on the literature, are of hyaline vascular variant, while the rest are the plasma cell variant. Since plasma cell variant, Castleman disease is uh, unicentric or multicentric, when we as pathologists make, make this diagnosis, clinical team has to exclude multicentric Castleman disease. Clinically, hyaline vascular variant occurs over a broad age range from childhood to old age, but is most commonly seen in people in four decades. It has similar incidence among males and females. Lymph nodes are most commonly involved. Typical site is mediastinum. However, occasionally we see involvement of spleen or soft tissue. Plasma cell variant patients are on average older than patients with hyaline vascular variant of Castleman disease. And any lymph node group can be involved. Also has similar incidence in males and females. Multicentric Castleman disease occurs over a broad age range. Patients present with lymphadenopathy, typically of multiple sites, but also other signs and symptoms, including hepatosplenomegaly, edema, effusions in body cavities, skin changes, neurologic changes, and different lab abnormalities. Patients with HHV8-positive Castleman disease can be HIV positive or HIV negative. Idiopathic Castleman disease, which is less common than the HHV8 associated one, is not a diagnosis that a pathologist can make because it requires uh, that the clinical criteria are fulfilled. So what diagnosis do we make as pathologists? What are you going to see in our reports? So we are either going to call Castleman disease a hyaline vascular variant, a plasma cell variant, or we can diagnose Castleman disease multicentric HHVA positive. I'm going to go over histology of different histologic variants of Castleman disease, starting with hyaline vascular variant of Castleman disease. This is a low-power view of a lymph node involved by a hyaline vascular variant of Castleman disease. Lymph node has overall preserved but distorted architecture. 
What's immediately noticeable is that you have increased in follicles, which vary in size, and many are small. Sinuses, which are typically open, are typically obliterated or largely obliterated. This is a medium power view of the same lymph node, and it shows mostly follicles, which, as I said, are increased in number. Follicles can be round or irregular. Germinal centers, which are in the center of the follicles, are depleted of small lymphocytes and instead have increased follicular dendritic cells. Mantle zones, which surround the germinal centers, are showing so-called onion skin pattern. Why onion skin? Because you have concentric rings of small lymphocytes, which are reminiscent of an onion when you cut it in half. There are some other histologic changes which are helpful in diagnosing Castleman disease. One of those are lollipop lesions, which is basically a sclerotic blood vessel that radially penetrates germinal center. It's reminiscent of a lollipop it's in here, therefore a lollipop lesion. Also, in some cases you can see hyaline deposits, and uh, this is one of the other features of Castleman disease. And then something that is also pretty characteristic is twinning, which is two or more germinal centers found in one follicle. Typically, you only have one in a normal animal. But not only follicles show changes. Prominent changes are also seen in the interfollicular region, so the region in between the follicles. And the most conspicuous is the uh, marked increase in vascularity and the vessels that proliferate are called high endothelial venules. And also, an important pertinent negative is that the sheets of plasma cells that are typically seen in plasma cell variant of Castleman disease are absent in highly vascular variant. Some cases also show sclerotic bands, as demonstrated here, these pink structures are sclerotic bands. This is a higher power of sclerotic band. In some cases, we'll also have thick capsules. And also an interesting finding, peculiar histologic finding, which is seen in Castleman disease, is that those are clusters of plasmacytoid dendritic cell, which have a starry sky appearance, because they have these interspersed paler cells. Therefore, uh, that gives it a starry sky appearance. And if you really want to demonstrate plasmacytoid dendritic cell, you can stain with CD123, and you can see that they are not only found in clusters, but also interspersed in the interfollicular area, and definitely increased. Moving on to plasma cell variant of Castleman disease. This is a low-power view of a lymph node involved by a plasma cell variant of Castleman disease. Lymph node shows preserved architecture, and in contrast with hyaline vascular variant, sinuses are open. These elongated, uh, paler structures are sinuses, and they can even be occasionally distended. Lymph node follicles are increased, but here you can nicely see germinal centers in most follicles. Having said that, subset of cases can have some hyaline vascular features, but they are less developed than in the hyaline vascular variant. And most importantly, in diagnostical, what's diagnostically important in this uh, variant is that you have sheets of interfollicular plasma cells. This, they kind of uh, have this purplish hue when you look at them on a low power. Higher power showing plasma cells, again. And then uh, a very high power showing uh, sheets of plasma cells that appear mature. If you want to demonstrate plasma cells, you can do immunohistochemical stain for CD138, as shown here, which will highlight these confluent sheets of interfollicular plasma cell in a plasma cell variant of Castleman disease. There are some cases that show mixed features of both, so hyaline vascular and plasma cell variant of Castleman disease. Today, these cases are considered as a spectrum of plasma cell variants. So this is a low-power view of a lymph node that uh, shows increased follicles, and most of them show twinning, so two or more germinal center within the follicle. And then in between, 
there are large sheets of this kind of purplish staining cells, which are plasma cells. This is a medium power view showing prominent follicular twinning, or germinal center twinning, actually. And then this is an image that shows uh, hyalinized germinal centers with twinning, and then sheets of plasma cells. Sheets of plasma cells and follicle twinning. And then if you want to demonstrate plasma cell, you could do kappa light chain and lambda light chain immunostains, which shows that plasma cells are polytypic. Moving on to a case of multicentric HHEA positive Castleman disease. This is a very low power view or a whole mound basically of a lymph node involved by HHEA positive multicentric Castleman disease. In general, these cases have features, histologic features of plasma cell variant with overall preserved architecture with increased follicles, as seen here. So this is a medium power view of the same lymph node, which shows increased follicles. It demonstrates sinuses, these elongated tail structures, which are open. And in the interfollicular areas, there is vascular proliferation. One little histologic uh, clue that can be seen in these variants are blurred boundaries between mantle zones and interfollicular areas. And what does that mean? Mantle zone is seen surrounding the germinal center, but here, in this follicle and pretty much all of the follicles, it is really unclear, at least on this part, where the mantle zone stops and the interfollicular area starts, so that means there's a blurred boundary between mantle zone and the interfollicular area. This is a high power showing a follicle and sheets of interfollicular plasma cells. In all of these cases, we do uh, an HHVA stain. Generally, in all cases of plasma cell variant of Castleman disease, one should do an HHVA immunohistochemical stain. And in cases that are positive, we will see these uh, positive cells mostly in the mantle zone distribution, like seen in these three follicles, but also scattered in the interfollicular areas. This is a High, very high power view of a follicle with a mantle zone to demonstrate the cells that are staining for HHV8. These cells are larger, they're shown here and here and here, and they have features of plasmablasts or immunoblasts. What is that? What does that mean? As I said, these are larger cells. They have run nuclei, open chromatin, and usually one central nucleolus. These are the cells that are going to be stained. So we call them plasmablasts. These cells have characteristic immunohistochemical profile. In addition to being positive for HHV8, they're also positive for IgM uh, heavy chain. And they are lambda light chain restricted when we do uh, either in situ hybridization or immunohistochemical stain for kappa and lambda. So as I said, HHV positive, IgM positive, lambda positive, and kappa positive, as seen in this case. When we do CD138, we can demonstrate the interfollicular sheets of plasma cells. This is a bit of a higher power showing those same plasma cells, which are polytypic by kappa and lambda. So the interfollicular plasma cells are polytypic, while the plasmablasts that are HHVA positive are lambda light chain restricted. A few notes about idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease and uh, how it relates to histology. So idiopathic multicentric 
Castleman disease can be seen sort of standalone on its own. And um, those cases we call non-tafrotype. Or it can be seen in the context of two syndromes. One is a tafra and the other one is a poems. These acronyms are explained here on the right side. So tafra stands for thrombocytopenia, anasarcan, fibrosis of the bone marrow, renal dysfunction, and organomegaly. While poem stands for polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, slash edema, monochromal protein, and skin changes. These are rare syndromes, but occasionally in our pathology practice, we can see a biopsy from a patient with one of these syndromes or a suspicion uh, of uh, these syndromes. So in an idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease of non-tapro type, we have a typically a plasma cell variant, a histology. However, compared to HHV-positive cases, mantle zones are usually sharply defined from the interfollicular areas. In TAFRA patients, we have more of a mixed feature, so there's a plasma cell variant with a mixed highly vascular features. And then the POEM syndrome, we also have a plasma cell variant, but we can also see occasional highly In conclusion, we as pathologists diagnose histologic variants of Castleman disease, not clinical variants. Highly vascular variant, which is the most common variant in our practice, is typically unicentric. However, plasma cell variant can be unicentric or multicentric, and we basically call it plasma cell variant, and it's up to clinical team to further diagnose the patient with appropriate clinical data. We can, however, reliably diagnose HHV-positive multicentric Castleman disease since we have a good immunohistochemical stain that will demonstrate HHV-positive cells. Diagnosis of idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease is complex and requires correlation with clinical, laboratory, and radiologic findings. Thank you very much. I'm Seth Kligerman. I am uh, Division Chief of Cardiothoracic Radiology, University of California, San Diego. I'm actually leaving in a few weeks to take over as chair at National Jewish in Denver. Um, I'm also a lecturer in cardiac and thoracic imaging at the American Institute of Radiologic Pathology, which is the successor on the radiology side of the radiology course at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which I used to lecture at uh, back in the day. Uh, so you know, working with pathologists at the AFIP now, the uh, Joint Pathology Center, I've been very fortunate to uh, work with some fantastic pathologists. And uh, one of the papers that we wrote many years ago was on the radiologic pathologic correlation of Castleman disease. Uh, so I want to thank uh, the two pathologists on this paper, uh, Terry Franks and Aaron Arabach, as well as one of my uh, mentors in radiology, Jeff Galvin, who's at University of Maryland, who's also done a lot of work in radiology pathology correlation. This is the first case. This is a 34-year-old male with uh, HIV-AIDS with a CD4 count of 16 who presented to the ED with worsening shortness of breath. And um, like most patients in the emergency department, he underwent uh, a chest CT. And the chest CT, I'll show the lung windows first. So the lung windows have some interesting findings. Uh, you can see that there are these strikingly peribronchovascular areas of consolidation and surrounding the consolidation of more ill-defined areas of ground glass opacity. And again, these are strikingly peribronchovascular. Um, and as you scroll through the lungs, you see these there throughout the lungs. And then as you get to the lung bases, you start to see some septal thickening. Uh, in the lower lobes, uh, there's some trace effusions, although his heart function, cardiac function was completely normal. Now, when we go to the soft tissue windows, we see something interesting. We see all this really bulky adenopathy, especially in the axillary regions, as well as in the mediastinum. You can see there's a left internal mammary lymph node. And throughout the mediastinum and hyla, subcrinal space, again, you're seeing this bulky lymph adenopathy. Now, what's interesting about this adenopathy, which uh, should catch the eyes of most uh, radiologists, is how avidly enhancing it is. So here is the lung window 
findings just showing you some of these areas of peribronchovascular consolidation and around the periphery of this consolidation are these areas of ground glass opacity. Um, there's a specific term we use for this pattern, not the peribronchovascular consolidation. That is completely not specific. We see in various uh, causes, but when you start to see it like this with the surrounding ground glass, we often call that, call that a flame shape appearance, like a flame. Um, and then here you can see the areas of septal thickening. These lines are the areas where there's uh, interlobular septal thickening. And then just to show you, the patient underwent a non-contrast CT a week later, uh, showing that the nodes, when you give contrast, are active, you know, avidly enhancing. So it's not uncommon to see a little bit of enhancement in lymph nodes, but these are very, very bright. Uh, and all of the lymph nodes throughout the mediastinum, subcrinal space, the hyla, look how enhancing this lymph node is in the left hilum, internal mammary nodes, these are all quite avidly enhancing. Uh, and then here is a coronal, just a thicker slice where you can see how bright the lymph nodes in the axilla uh, really are in this case. So the patient underwent a lymph node biopsy and a bronchoscopic biopsy. And there are really two answers here that you should, you know, kind of bring your, uh, when you're looking at this, you kind of have to fight between if you're a radiologist, but if you, um, you know, are so specialist radiologist, I think, uh, and you, you do a lot of these cases, um, I think you, the answer, the most, the best answer is um, a little better than the other answer that is possible. Not surprising that this is a lecture on Casma disease, um, that the answer is multicentric Casma disease and Kaposi sarcoma. This is the pathology. Um, I am not a pathologist, so I am going to, I know that these areas, these uh, nodal aggregates are the areas of the lymphoid follicles that you see, um, and that the surrounding stroma, within the surrounding stroma, there is this vascular proliferation. Um, and then here is the CD34, which shows supposedly, I was told, areas of KS. But again, I apologize if any of that is correct or if it is completely incorrect. Um, so what is the best um, explanation or the explanation for the answer being multicentric calcium disease with uh, Kaposi's sarcoma or Kaposi's, um, depending on which country you're from? But uh, well, we know that people with lymphadenopathy, with HIV-AIDS, when they get, you know, diffuse lymphadenopathy, we know there's a risk for patients developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, why would I think multicentral Casman disease versus non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? When you're seeing avidly enhancing lymph nodes, you should you should think of multicentral Casman disease. Now, could this still be non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Absolutely. We know that in sometimes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh can enhance this degree of enhancement is a little atypical, but we also know that um, patients with uh, multicentral Casman disease, uh, you know, these cases will often degenerate into an aggressive lymphoma. Uh, so, you know, the first part of the answer, I mean, it, it could be NHL or multicentric. We know non-Hodgkin's is much more common, but it really is the parenchymal findings. And just one thing about lymph nodes, you know, why not infection? You know, infection, it's not going to give you symmetric lymphadenopathy like this throughout the thorax. And this patient also had abdominal lymphadenopathy. It's just not going to do that. Infections are going to be asymmetric. It's going to be bulky on one side. It really isn't going to be this you know, symmetric throughout the axilla, mediastinum, and hyla. But the real differentiation between non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with parenchymal lymphoma, which definitely can happen, uh, versus multicentral Casman disease and uh, Kaposi sarcoma is, again, these parenchymal findings of these peribronchovascular. Now, both lymphoma and Capaces give you peribronchovascular abnormalities, but the appearance of the peribronchovascular abnormalities are quite different. And again, very subtle if you if you don't uh, do this uh, on a daily basis. So, in capaces, it has this very characteristic ill-defined spreading along the uh, bronchovascular bundle, and then as it kind of extends outwards, you often see ground glass surrounding the areas of abnormality. Now, if you didn't use intravenous contrast, it would be very difficult to make this diagnosis. You would just think lymphoma. And again, it really takes a biopsy to differentiate between multicentral Casman disease and uh, lymphoma. So the, again, the, the parenchymal findings really help you uh, 
differentiate. And we know that both multicentric Casman disease and Kaposi's sarcoma are related to HHV-8 infection. And there's one paper I found online, the first paper that said up to 70% of patients uh, with uh, uh, multicentric Casman disease will have uh, Kaposi's sarcoma in nodes or in uh, elsewhere uh, at the time of diagnosis. And this is what happened about a year later, and this is more fulminant uh, capacities. Uh, he's got extensive abnormality here, increased thickening of the peribronchovascular interstitium, increasing ground glass, worsening septal thickening, uh, and the passed away. So why not tuberculosis? Well, again, TB, the, the imaging findings in the lungs really don't look like TB. Uh, the nodes don't look like TB. Here you can see someone with uh, primary tuberculosis. And you can see the bulky adenopathy you get. It really involves the side of tuberculosis. You can see the right hilum and subcrinal region. The lymph adenopathy also in TB tends to be necrotic and low attenuation, not enhancing like this. You can see the cavity here. And then if you have hematogenous tuberculosis, you get nodularity, but it's random. It's not, you know, here is, yeah, this is a peribronchovascular nodule, but you don't really have the surrounding ground glass. And they're, they're random nodules here. They're really don't follow in any distribution. Some are central lobular, some are peribronchovascular, but again, others are just placed anywhere within the secondary unit of the secondary lobule. So uh, TB isn't a great answer. The second answer, the answer that it you, you have to kind of differentiate between this is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with parenchymal lymphoma. So parenchymal lymphoma is peribronchovascular, but it is more nodular. It's more of these very well-defined nodules. And often you will see classically air bronchograms or a bronchus that goes through these areas of nodularity. Again, you can see a bronchus growing through one of these nodules. So, you know, based on the, the nodes, I mean, if you just had the nodes, it's, you know, given that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is just so much more common, it may just be in a typical look for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or a multicentric Casman disease that degenerated. Uh, but the practical findings, again, this is what lymphoma looks like, not like our uh, Kaposi sarcoma case. What about uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with pneumocystis pneumonia? Well, again, the parenchymal findings really don't look like uh, pneumocystis. This is a, what pneumocystis classically looks like. It's a, this is a 27-year-old transgender patient with HIV, uh, uncontrolled HIV with AIDS. And you can see the diffuse ground glass. There are some areas of lobular sparing. Um, and then if you look very closely, it almost like a, like a mesh framework within the areas of ground glass, which is what we call a crazy paving pattern. And then lastly, here is a patient um, with uh, multicentric Katzman disease and cystis pneumonia. And you could see the avidly enhancing lymph nodes from the Katzman disease. This patient actually had uh, pneumocystis pneumonia. Again, the ground glass with the crazy paving. And then you can see this one actually had cystic change, which isn't that common, but we do occasionally see with people with uh, multiple episodes of pneumocystis pneumonia. So again, the best answer for that case really was multicentric Katzman disease and Kaposi's sarcoma. So let's go to our second case. This is a 34-year-old woman who had uh, really no significant medical history, and the patient presented to the emergency department with a cough, and like everybody who comes to the ED, they get a chest x-ray, and the radiologist astutely picked up that there was something abnormal on the chest x-ray, and the patient uh, initially underwent a non-contrast CT, subsequently after that underwent a contrast CT, and then eventually underwent a PET CT. And you could see three images from that. You can see the non-contrast CT here uh, on the left, the contrast CT in the middle, and the PET CT uh, that was done subsequently a little bit later. And the thing you could see here, so I know that, I don't know how much radiology you look at here, is the aorta. This is the pulmonary artery sitting here. It just hasn't come into plane yet. And there's this big bulky mass. It's really kind of in that area of the aortical pulmonary window. Uh, and it's avidly enhancing. So you can see that this here's without contrast, with contrast, almost as bright as the aorta. I mean, very, very avidly enhancing. There's a little punctate calcification. There's some little areas that aren't enhancing, maybe some little vascular areas. Um, and then here is the avidly, uh, the extensive uptake on the uh, FDG PET imaging. And I'm sure many of you said, well, this is a lecture on Casman disease. It's going to be C and essential Casman disease. But actually, believe it or not, that, that wouldn't be what we would think of first. So what we would actually think of first 
would be given this location. So here's the here's the case here would be a paraganglioma. So here are four additional different patients with paragangliomas um, in the AP window, kind of some more anterior mediastinum, others more AP window. This is a very, and when I first saw this case, I really said, you know, this looks like a paraganglioma. We all, I mean, I showed it to multiple people. Everyone thought it would be a paraganglioma. Um, and it, it really does have this characteristic appearance and location, even the punctate calcifications, which we can see in paragangliomas. So paragangliomas are uh, avidly enhancing anterior or uh, middle mediastinal masses. We know that they occur along the sympathetic chain. Um, you know, a lot of times they're slightly more anterior to the pulmonary artery, but here is a case where we're sitting right in the AP window. Uh, now, you often think of uh, systemic hypertension, but actually hypertension and persistent hypertension is only seen in 29% of patients um, with uh, paragangliomas. So you don't have to have uh, hypertension. And on imaging, the best study to make the diagnosis is uh, with MIBG. So I-123 MIBG, you know, avid uptake in uh, paragangliomas. So here is this case here showing the MIBG uptake. This big bright dot corresponds to this middle mediastinal lesion, the one in the AP window. But always pathology is the gold standard. And again, the, the location of this really is typical for a paraganglioma. However, this was not a paraganglioma. And then just to show you, I, you know, I, I know these are um, nests of glands. I, but again, I'm not even. You would look at this and say this clearly is a paraganglioma, but not me. Um, you know, that's that's what you guys do. I'm guessing these areas are maybe some vascular channels, but I'm not entirely sure. And one thing I forgot to mention is that uh, paragangliomas will be. Uh, have uptake on FTG PET imaging as well. So that also would fit with the diagnosis. So what about a parathyroid adenoma? Well, parathyroid adenomas do avidly enhance. They're, you know, when you, this, I first saw this study with uh, this contrast enhanced scan, you can see this very, you know, area of an uptake here, very avidly enhancing area. Uh, but then the question is, well, is it enhancing or is there just a lot of iodine in this inherently? Because here's the thyroid anterior to it. And you can see the thyroid does enhance, but it also has a lot of iodine within it. And then we often see little areas, a little islands of thyroid tissue that may be usually connected to the thyroid, but often ectopic or just directly adjacent to it, but not connected. And most likely you say, well, it's probably just a little bit of ectopic thyroid tissue. But actually this patient had a non-contrast scan a few weeks earlier that is the parathyroid adenoma is, is very dark, while the thyroid still remains bright. So that ab enhancement is more suggestive of parathyroid adenoma. Um, and it turns out she was hypercalcemic, asymptomatic, and then she underwent a Technation's 99 Sestamibi scan to make the diagnosis of parathyroid adenoma. So why not uh, a paraganglioma? Well, A, this is a very unusual location for paraganglioma. I've seen a lot of paragangliomas and never one up here. They're almost always uh, the, in the anterior middle mediastinum where I, I showed the case, rarely in the posterior mediastinum. Again, I've never seen one up here. Usually they're much larger than this. This would be very small for a paraganglioma. And then uh, also the uptake on technetium system. Now the correct answer, actually what it turned out to be, but the incorrect answer for this case is unicentric asthma disease. And the question is, well, why isn't it unicentric asthma disease? That's what it is. Well, I, you know, I don't know of a single radiologist who would look at this case and say, oh, the, this, the first thing I would think of is unicentric asthma disease. A is extremely rare. Um, you know, the, the prevalence is less than one in 100,000. Uh, you know, paragangliomas are rare, but even, you know, the best estimate or the, you know, your rarest estimate, you're talking one in 10,000. You know, one study said it's one in 6,000. So they're, they're very uh, prevalent. You know, it, it, they're very rare. Uh, two, you know, most cases of unicentric calcimities aren't sitting right here where a paraganglioma usually occurs. You know, they're, they're, they can be along the spine and, or the ribs. They can be in the axilla. They can be, you know, elsewhere, um, you know, in the mediastinum and chest wall. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's almost like the last thing. If you're going to throw uh, something on a differential diagnosis, it's going to of an av something avidly enhancing. It's just going to be the last thing because it's so rare. And um, you know, this is the pathology from this case showing the the Casper disease. Uh, this patient did undergo uh, resection and uh, did very did very well. 
and we know this is a benign proliferation of lymphoid tissue, uh, but uh, you know it needs to be resected. Now, hemangiomas are benign vascular neoplasms, um, also very, very rare. Uh, but I've seen a lot more than them than I have. Uh, not a lot more. I've seen more of them than I have uh, Castleman disease, uh, unicentric Castleman disease. You know, mediastinal hemangiomas again rare. Uh, like most hemangiomas elsewhere, they're going to show classically. Uh, you know, slow peripheral enhancement and fill in over time. Uh, they've been reported, like in this case, to present with recurrent uh, hemothorax. Uh, and uh, so they're not that avid arterial enhancement during the early phase. So, you know, these the phase case I showed you was during early arterial phase, avid enhancement. This one just slowly fills in over time. Plus, this is a PET scan from this case. This would be negative on uh, FDG PET. There would be no uptake because it's it's a benign tumor. And there's It's not metabolically. And then the last one that it's not a good answer is Hodgkin's. Uh, Hodgkin's, I mean, it's common, but usually it's a massive anterior mediastinal mass. Uh, yeah, it can infiltrate into all the uh, different compartments of the mediastinum if it gets big enough. You know, the interesting thing about Hodgkin's, and I, I don't understand why, uh, that it can envelop structures and even compress the pulmonary arteries, but it often completely spares mass effect on the SVC. Or if there is mass effect, it's relatively mild. Uh, it's very interesting why that occurs with with Hodgkin's. Uh, you can see the bulky adenopathy in the chest wall, uh, contiguous with the mediastinal mass. This patient has you know post obstructive atelectasis of the left lower lobe. Anyways, you can see what a what a Hodgkin's just doesn't look like this avidly enhancing middle mediastinal mass in the AP window. I want to thank you for your time. I hope uh, you learned something. I know that a lot of pathologists aren't exposed to radiology. Start exposed to pathology. I have to say, some of the most enjoyable moments I've had has been in my pathologist's office reviewing you know, strange cases of ILD or cardiac masses, mediastinal masses. It's, it's really enjoyable for me. So um, I hope you enjoyed some of it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.